Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are tanned and our batteries recharged after a week off. And we're excited to get back into the news stream, which has been teeming with serious geopolitical headlines from Ukraine to China and Afghanistan in between. In the first segment, we will be talking with Monica Duffy Toft of the Military Intervention Project at Tufts University. But first, let's talk about the biggest news this week. Nancy Pelosi, U.S. Speaker of the House and third in line to the presidency, traveling to Taiwan amid rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. Her stop in Taiwan on Tuesday was drawing fire in the lead up with the Pentagon and the White House actually saying it was a bad idea. And my colleague, Michael Swain, actually saying it was, quote, nothing short of reckless and stupid. Why? Because despite what Pelosi said in a Washington Post op-ed Tuesday, that her visit should be seen, quote, as unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom, it is actually seen as a provocation, one that may accelerate any plans for China to finally aggressively absorb the island nation by force. Each visit by a U.S. official, each freedom of navigation exercise in the Taiwan Strait, each call for Washington to be more explicit in its military defense of Taipei is seen as a hostile act. And instead of protecting Taiwan from a military takeover, maybe putting it in the crosshairs of an antagonized China. Pelosi is the highest ranking official since Newt Gingrich to visit the island and to say it is more provocative than any other congressional delegation is an understatement. So Dan, what do you think of the fallout? Uh, what, what kind of fallout do you think will come from this ill-timed tete-a-tete in Taipei? So it's, I mean, we're already starting to see some of it in the early moves by the Chinese government in terms of suspending imports uh, in, imposing certain forms of economic punishment on Taiwan. Of course, China and Taiwan are heavily in, economically integrated with each other, uh, despite the the very obvious uh, political rift between them. And so there, there is a limit to how much the Chinese government can punish Taiwan without also punishing themselves. But they also have uh, more uh, more resources to fall back on if they want to really send a message and... and uh, Force the Taiwanese government to pay attention to their to their complaints. Uh, I think the more serious response that we've already started to see are these live fire drills that the Chinese military is conducting or will be conducting this week uh, through through the weekend, uh, including in some parts of what Taiwan considers to be its territorial waters. This is much more uh, an aggressive move by the Chinese military than anything that they did in the 1995-96 crisis. Uh, which precipitated uh, Clinton's decision to send two carrier groups uh, as a signal of support for Taiwan. That was that was the third uh, Taiwan Strait crisis, uh, and that was uh, the backdrop to Gingrich's original visit to Taiwan in '97, uh, 25 years ago, uh, which which China did not like, but did not react nearly as strongly against because they had already been faced down by uh, much more powerful U.S. forces. Uh, at that time. Today, the, the balance of power is very different, uh, especially on China's doorstep. China is much more powerful militarily and economically than it was then. Uh, it has uh, many more options for uh, punishing and harassing Taiwan than it used to have. Uh, and I think we're going to keep seeing those being employed over the weeks and months to come. This is not going to be a one-week story uh, or, or just a, a story of a few days. 
where we're just starting to see the consequences unfold of what Pelosi did. And, and this, this brings us back to the, the, the main problem with Pelosi's visit, which is that it was wholly unnecessary. There, there was nothing that she did on this visit that had to be done, that couldn't have been done in, in another way in terms of signaling support for Taiwan. Uh, if you want to provide them with more weapons for their defense, you could do that. If you want to provide them with more economic uh, connections and economic, uh, more of an economic relationship, you could do that. You could do many things that would actually strengthen Taiwan's position vis-a-vis the mainland, but those, those aren't the things we're doing. Instead, we have a lot of politicians running around, running their mouths uh, and, and getting themselves in the spotlight at the expense of the people they claim to be helping. And so it's it's very frustrating to see people defending this trip. There are there aren't that many people defending it actually, but there there are still quite a number that will insist that this was some sort of clever uh, masterstroke by Pelosi to send a, a symbolic uh, gesture to China that we're never going to abandon Taiwan. Uh, I, I think it, it ends up sending a very dangerous signal to Beijing that we're essentially trying to rewrite the rules of the arrangement that we've had with them uh, for the last 40 years, and that we're doing it uh, on our own schedule and on our own terms, regardless of what they think. And that's that's bound to trigger a very nasty reaction from them. I don't think it's going to take the form of uh, open conflict or, or military action against Taiwan anytime soon. I tend to think warnings about a Chinese attack on Taiwan are, are usually overblown because the Chinese can see the risks as well as anybody else. Uh, but I, I do think we are going to be looking at an increased campaign of pressure, uh, both uh, economically and diplomatically, uh, and through uh, military exercises and and activities in the vicinity of Taiwan that will be much worse than anything we've seen in the, the recent past. And the, the, the trigger for this, the cause for this, is undeniably this pointless visit. Uh, and, and I think many allies in uh, in the Asia-Pacific region are aware of this and, and see this as a serious problem with the way that we're handling our relations with the Chinese. Uh, they, they see it as, as kind of unilateral and irresponsible, and there, there's no coordination going on with any of the allies that we're actually sworn to protect, uh, and all on behalf of a country that we don't have any obligations to protect. And it, it, so it, it strikes, I think it strikes many allies as kind of irrational. It strikes me as a little irrational given that we have this war going on in Ukraine, that we have devoted mm-hmm. all sorts of attention, energy, and above all, money and weapons to see um, through. And somehow we have been distracted, and I don't know for what reason, uh, with what's going on in Taiwan and China. And it, it in this context, I can't, I can't help but think that this isn't the best way or the best timing. I know that even before uh, what you know the Russian invasion, that we had um, an entire blob mobilization for uh, a focus on China, and we saw how the budgets have been beefed up, and we've seen in all of the the rhetoric on on Capitol Hill that we had to get ready for some big power competition with China. 
And what happened in Ukraine and, and, and Russia has sort of um, forestalled that. But it would seem to me that this is not the best timing or our, our leadership in Washington, whether it be Pelosi or the Hawks or even Biden in the White House, are they thinking that somehow we have leveraged the war in Ukraine uh, to our benefit, that, that, that it, it is ripe? For confronting China now, that somehow are they are are they under some illusion? Are they reading the tea leaves wrong? Um, please help me here, Dan. Well, I, I don't, I don't think you're you're reading it wrong. I I don't know, I don't know what the Biden administration has been thinking about this. Uh, according, I mean, and you know, caveat, lector, uh, we were getting some of this from from people like Tom Friedman. Uh, but in his recent column, Tom Friedman claims that despite the efforts of lots of Biden administration officials to appeal to Pelosi on this question, that, that the president himself would not actually directly ask her not to go. Right. Because he thinks he thinks that that would make him look weak on China and that Republicans would exploit that, which I mean, if, if that's true, if that's the real reason why he didn't intercede and stop Pelosi from going, uh, then that's that's the dumbest possible reason I can think of. Uh, for allowing this crisis to to build, um, what what I what I think we see uh, in the way that the U.S. has uh, been approaching all of these different uh, regions, uh, whether it's the the war in Ukraine or tensions with China over Taiwan, is, is just a, a total lack of discipline. Uh, there's no there's no sense of which region it has priority, which area has the most vital U.S. interests in it. And so we end up heavily over-investing uh, in the war in Ukraine and, and treating it as though Ukraine is, if not an actual ally, then, then certainly a de facto ally when they're not. Uh, and so we, we are pouring all of these resources into that conflict and focusing our attention on that to the, to the exclusion of many other things, uh, when objectively our interests in East Asia and the Pacific are much greater than they are in Ukraine. Uh, but we, for whatever reason, we're, we're allowing ourselves to be distracted again from that. Um, but then we're, the Biden administration isn't willing to, to even make the effort to, to keep things stable in East Asia. They're, they're willing to let someone like Pelosi go and start a new problem when we haven't finished dealing with any of the old ones. And so there, there's there's a lack of coordination, but there, there's a lack of discipline and a lack of focus that, I mean, I suppose you could say that's been the problem with our foreign policy for many decades. Yeah. But it's it's really becoming uh, hard to to get away with it anymore because there, there are too many problems bubbling up at the same time. And the U.S. is already overstretched and can't manage all of them effectively. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't seem to cause anyone to rethink the number of commitments that we have. Instead, uh, as we, we see uh, reported this week, the Senate will be taking up uh, the expansion of NATO to include Finland and Sweden uh, to, to add even more commitments in Europe than we already have. And so there, there's no sense of, of limits uh, to what we can do in the world, but reality is gradually going to force us to recognize those limits, whether we like it or not. 
Yeah. And I, and I almost feel like that there is like a disconnect here that there is this echo chamber in Washington and maybe particularly in the, in the democratic bubble where they think that our reaction to the invasion of Russia, our um, support for Ukraine, the, the billions of dollars we're sending there, um, the, the uh, support that we're getting from some European partners, mainly the UK and Poland, that somehow that's is sending some kind of message to China, like we mean business and we're tough and this is going to happen to you if you do anything to Taiwan. And so what we're interpreting as um, we're seeing the glass maybe less less full, we're seeing that they don't have the entire world on their side, that we are we may be throwing good money after bad in a war of attrition in Ukraine, that Russia hasn't suffered from the sanctions the way that we thought it would. Maybe Washington, official Washington, is seeing this differently, and they think the time is ripe to, to stick out its chin and, and tell China uh, who's boss. And I, I think they're wrong. And I think this Pelosi trip may be an outgrowth of that distorted thinking and the fact that Biden really wouldn't put his foot down and uh, is kind of playing both sides. And you do see a number of Washington columnists talking about, well, she has every right to go over there. And if she doesn't make this trip, that would show weakness and be caving into China. And uh, China is China is poised and ready ready to pounce on Taiwan. And we have to get rid of this strategic ambiguity and show that we are fully on the side of Taiwan. And I'm I'm hearing this in this echo chamber in in Washington. I I feel it's 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 like my colleague Michael Swain said. It's just stupidity because it could get us into a situation where we are in a a two front war when at a time when we can't afford it, and that the American people are clearly not behind it. Right. And well, and, and that's one of the reasons why the, the visit is so particularly ill-timed, uh, because it is coming on the heels of all of this talk about introducing strate- so-called strategic clarity uh, to the relationship with Taiwan and making an explicit commitment to defend them. Uh, and it comes on the heels of Biden having said that the U.S. has such a commitment to Taiwan when it doesn't. Uh, and so, Ty- so Biden has already been chipping away, as far as the Chinese are concerned, has been already chipping away at existing uh, China policy uh, that has been in place for 40 years. And and then you see this, what's effectively or, or very close to a state visit or a visit by a high-ranking U.S. official to Taiwan uh, as if to confirm uh, that we're going to have this commitment to them, whether, whether we openly say it or not. Uh, all, all of the signals are pointing in that direction. And so what what are what is the Chinese government supposed to think uh, that this is part of a, a pattern of behavior that we've been showing them for several years now, and and they're they're likely to draw the the least favorable conclusions about that that they can uh, on on the assumption that we're trying to to pull something. Uh, in, in terms of the conflict with Ukraine, it makes it also makes very little sense to antagonize China when keeping China relatively neutral in the conflict is very useful to the cause of defending Ukraine. Uh, according to everything we've seen, in the, that's reported in the press anyway, China has not been providing Russia with the military assistance that Russia would like them to provide. 
China uh, has not been willing to stick its neck out for them in a big way. Uh, it's not going to condemn them either, but it's not going to to back them to the hilt the way that you might expect from two governments that just recently said that they have no limits in their relationship. Uh, so, so keeping China relatively neutral is desirable, uh, if, if for nothing else than to, to help keep the war shorter uh, than it would otherwise be. If China opens up all of its resources and throws its weight behind Russia, uh, things look very grim for Ukraine at that point. And so why you would gratuitously jab them in the eye over something that we know is extremely important to them. It's probably, if not the most important issue to them in the bilateral relationship, it's certainly one of the top three. So it's, it, it just makes no sense at all. And it, it points to, I, I think, just the general the general incompetence of how our foreign policy is being managed, that you can't even get the, the speaker and the president on the same page as to what we're trying to accomplish with our policy towards China. Uh, are, are we trying to antagonize them? Are we trying to, to provoke something? Uh, if you didn't know better, you would think so based on what they're doing. But, it, but I don't think they actually want that. I think they want all the credit for the grandstanding uh, without any of the downsides that will inevitably come from it. And, and unfortunately, Taiwan is the one that's going to pay most of the price uh, for all of this. Of course, U.S. interests will also be negatively impacted because it's going to interfere with our ability to get any business done with China on other issues. And I think we, at this point, we can forget about the U.S. dropping tariffs on China because that would also be interpreted as, quote unquote, weakness. And so they, they end up boxing themselves in where they can't even engage in normal diplomacy uh, because we have to take this uh, stand for Taiwan uh, or be seen as taking the stand for Taiwan when, when all of this could have been avoided if, if Pelosi had just stayed at home. I am so happy to welcome Monica Duffy-Toff to Crashing the War Party this week. Monica is the director of the Center for Strategic Studies, a professor of international politics and co-director of the Military Intervention Project at Tufts University. She began her career as a Russian linguist for the U.S. Army, has led research on topics including U.S. foreign policy and international security, ethnic and religious violence, and civil wars and demography. Previously, she served on the faculty of Harvard University's Kennedy Center, uh, School of Government, and the Olin Institute for Strategic Studies, and at the University of Oxford in the UK. She is widely published in academic journals and the author and co-author of numerous books, including Securing the Peace, The Durable Settlement of Civil Wars. Thank you, Monica, for joining us today. Well, thank you, Kelly, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Monica, I would love to start off with a personal question. You are such an accomplished academic, and I know from your recent work, you have been quite critical about Washington's proclivity for using military force abroad and the militarization of its foreign policy. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went from an U.S. Army linguist to one of the military's biggest critics in academia? Yeah, so um, I was in the U.S. Army, and I was, as you said, 
that I was a Russian linguist. I was actually a Russian voice interceptor. And so what was great about that, first of all, I was 17 years old. Um, and I, I wanted to go to college. I was a smart kid and I studied foreign languages in high school. So I had studied French, Spanish and Russian in high school. And, uh, the expectation was in my family that I would always go to college, but my dad was disabled. And so if I had wanted to go to college, I was going to have to pay for it. And funnily enough, one day I was just sitting in high school and they announced to take the armed forces entrance exam over the PA system. And I thought, no, that's interesting. I can get out of calculus and go take this thing. And I ended up doing very well on it. And recruiters started calling. And my father had been in army. I, I had come from a family about social justice and giving back and public service and all of that. So the idea wasn't anathema to me. And when the army guaranteed that I could study Russian, the Air Force just said you would get a foreign language, but the army guaranteed the study of Russian. And then after four years, I would have enough money to go to college. I thought, what a great opportunity. On top of that, it was the early 1980s. You had Ronald Reagan in office, and I was uh, I supported his foreign policy, the idea of the Soviet Union being an evil empire. Uh, and like I said, I had studied Russian in high school and followed politics. Um, and so to me, it was just an extraordinary opportunity to get this kind of real-world experience, get money to go to college. Um, and um, in, I ended up doing that. In fact, I almost made a career out of it, staying in and going through uh, officer training uh, candidate, candidate school. Uh, but I met my husband, and we joked that either our car or our bed was always warm. We never saw each other. <laughs> and we were lucky because we were stationed together in, in West Germany at the time, Augsburg. So can you imagine? Here I'm this 18-year-old, married, living basically in a penthouse apartment. It was the time of the Deutschmark trading at ridiculous levels. We were living high in the hog, having a wonderful time. But it's the height of the Cold War, right, uh, with Ronald Reagan making threats. And it was also a time where you had a quick succession of Soviet leaders. So you had Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernyenko, and then Gorbachev come in. So it was just amazing. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But I decided that, it, you know, after going through all of it, that four years was enough. I'd done my public service. Uh, then I went to University of California, Santa Barbara for my undergrad. My husband was a California native um, and decided there I, I actually contemplated working for the National Security Agency, doing the same job I had done in the Army, which was basically just listening to Soviet radio traffic, which was in exercises, which was really, really interesting work. Um, but decided I didn't want to do that and ended up applying for graduate school because I loved, you know, the idea of, of, of learning for a lifetime uh, and teaching and doing research. So we ended up, my husband and I both ended up getting into the University of Chicago, went there, and then I got my first position at Harvard Kennedy School, stayed there for 12 years. Then I went to Oxford uh, for four years. And now here I am at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and loving it. My students are great. My colleagues are wonderful. Um, and so it's, it's a very atypical path, uh, but I'm so grateful for my military service because it taught me a lot about bureaucracies. It taught me a lot about public service. The Army owns you. When you're in the service, it owns you. And now, paradoxically, I'm an academic. And so long as I meet my office hours, meet my teaching, get research done, my time is mine. So it's a very, very different lifestyle. But I'm very fortunate that I've had sort of experience in both sides of it. So how did you ma manage to shift from a Cold War mindset to a skeptic's mindset? Uh, was it difficult or was there a sort of a lightning 
rod moment uh, that kind of shifted your frame on foreign policy? I don't want to say there was a lightning rod moment because, you know, there, I think there is this sort of fallacy that people think that if you're a soldier, a warrior, that you think that the use of force is acceptable. And, and some people think that it's always that they think that the warriors think it's always acceptable. And that's not the case. I think, you know, I, I appreciate it. Look, I never wanted to fight. I put my hand up for the Constitution and I was willing to fight and die for our country. But the idea was is that force, use of force is always last resort, that you have other mechanisms, other means, and that there are soldiers, there are lives at the, at the end of decisions being made. Oh, and not just soldiers, there's also soldiers on the other side and civilians and combatants, oh, and destruction of property. So I have never been sort of pro-war, pro-violence, um, but I did have a very, very healthy appreciation for when violence should be used, right? And so what I was watching, you know, in the 1990s, by that point I was a graduate student working on my PhD, and I'm watching the Clinton administration come in, and I was I was really impressed with how the first George Bush um, uh, administration dealt with the demise of the Soviet Union with grace, with extraordinary um, um, humility. They understood they were humans with egos on the other side. Uh, compassion was there. But that sort of dissipated through the 1990s and sort of the Russian uh, Federation and, and leadership and, uh, and to some extent the citizens weren't given as, as much respect. And, 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 and I, I don't think we respected the dignity and what that country was going through to the same degree that the Bush administration. And we were supposed to have had a peace dividend. And so the United States ended up acting sort of uh, like the big uh, uh, I don't want to say bully, but but started becoming much more sort of unilateralist um, in dealing with problems around the world and using force. And so I'm watching this. I'm writing a book on securing the peace, uh, which you mentioned at your opening. Uh, it was my second book. And I noted or noticed that the United States was involved in a lot of these civil wars, civil wars that I'm thinking about. How do we bring an end to them, trying to understand their beginnings, but how do you bring an end to them? And so I started just dabbling with some of the data and realizing that foreign interventions were actually extending the length of civil wars. Um, and then as an American citizen, I became concerned because I'm thinking, wow, this is U.S. tax dollars, right, going to sort of these interventions around the world. Oh, and by the way, watching while they're not intervening in Rwanda, which is actually a place where I think we could have done something um, successful. Um, and then watching in other places where uh, it's going in, for example, Kosovo without a mandate. And then you have Russia saying, you're going to pay for this. Russia said that immediately, that you're going to pay for that Kosovo intervention in 1999. Then 2001 hit, and basically the president was given authorization, use of military force, basically at will, if it was in line with fighting against the war on terror. Um, and you saw the number of interventions just going up and the use of force, and I was quite concerned. So when I got to the Fletcher School, I decided to start a big project to investigate, is it the case that the United States has ramped up its use of force, or is this consistent with our behavior in the past? And so basically, Kelly, it was just sort of watching U.S. foreign policy, watching different administrations along the way make decisions and sort of resort to the use of force when, you know, it really should be last resort. I mean, I'm also trained in martial arts. I'm, you know, a black belt in karate. And the first lesson that you're taught is run away. 
You never want to use your fists, right? Run away from the fight. Do everything you can to try. Be an alert. Talk to people. Try, if you can't run away, try to talk them down, i.e. diplomacy. And so I guess what really unnerves me is I try to practice that in my personal life. And I don't see our country practicing this, you know, diplomatically. And, and, and then watching the State Department, right, the number of ambassadors, um, you know, and, the, and, and sort of the degrading of the professionalization. Many more are appointed today uh, because they've given to the party or they've given to a campaign rather than for their expertise. So it was a whole combination of just watching U.S. foreign policy, watching the national security establishment. And a lot of stuff being placed on DOD, right? We do have civilian control. Civilians are to blame here, right? They are. Um, on DOD, that shouldn't have been, when we shouldn't have been using force in places. And paradoxically, and like I said, there were some places where we should have, and we chose not to. And um, I was concerned about that as a scholar, as an American citizen. And so I've spent the last four or five years actually investigating this to see if it's the case that we are sort of if, – if the last 10, 15, 20 years has been errant behavior historically on the part of the United States. And, and I think as your uh, military intervention project shows uh, it, it has been an increase in, in uh, militarized foreign policy and in, in military interventions around the world. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, on the military intervention project. Uh, as you have found, uh, the U.S. has frequently used force as a first or second resort, especially over the last 30 years. And you say that it's become addicted to the overuse of the stick while underusing other non-military policy tools, despite the lack of success in military interventions overall. Uh, what do you think accounts for that addiction, and can the U.S. break it in the future? Well, Daniel, I think part of it was we did face a threat from 9-11, right? We, the United States was attacked. We hadn't been attacked since, you know, um, uh, World War I. I mean, World War II, the start of World War II. Um, and so I do think that there – and that over, and I, I think it led to an overreaction um, and a fear of the unknown. And so that and, – and like I said, the AUM, AUMF gave the president, the executive branch, the authority to basically um, uh, use force when it felt as if it had the right to. So I think so. I think that there was a sense immediately that the threat environment uh, was more hostile. But one of the things we did, Daniel, looking at it was we looked at the stakes involved. So how much uh, uh, of U.S. national interests was actually being threatened? And what's unnerving is, is that uh, if you look at the targets, you look at what we were trying to achieve, we were going after targets and after objectives that were not in line with the amount of force that we were using. And so I think part of it is the overzealousness in terms of what we were seeing as threats. Second is we didn't really have checks on us unilaterally um, and and not having the checks of, let's say, you know, the Cold War rivalry or other great powers to sort of, so I think that's another factor. Uh, and then the last factor I think is, is, so President Eisenhower had warned about the military industrial complex. So we are a nation that likes technology, weapons, and guns. They are the lobby, you know, we can talk about the, 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 the Iron Triangle is very active um, and it does manage to have bigger and bigger defense budgets. And the State Department, you know, it's always never been above uh, 6%. Right now, I think it's about 5.5% of the DOD budget. And so they don't have the same power, the same 
pork that they can deliver to neighborhoods around the country to do big capital ships, to make weapon systems, aircraft, right, uh, that go into overrides uh, in terms of. So I think it's a combination of factors. And then how do we bring it back and do a check? I think one is this kind of research, these kinds of podcasts, writing of opinion editorials, getting it in, in front of our policymakers' eyes, because there are real bread and butter trade-offs here, right? Uh, it, it is guns versus butter or guns versus bread, whatever, however you want to do it. And, and what, what the research is also showing that, and, and we're not the only ones, the Cost of War Project at Brown University has shown this, is, is it, when spending a defense creates the fewest number of jobs relative to other sectors, such as the academy, uh, medicine, and that sort of thing. And so I think What's going to have to happen is we're a democracy. Uh, it's going to happen in the electoral box where people say enough with the use of force. And what's striking, Daniel, is that if you look at surveys, Gallup, Pew, and others, um, most Americans think that, yes, we should be engaged actively around the world. There's no denying that. We need to be an active partner. We need to be an active um, and, and good role model around the world. But we don't have to be the leader that we can sometimes take the second or the third position. And so so what that tells me is, is that there's a lot of room there for diplomacy. If we don't have to go out, because we do have an extraordinary military, our soldiers, our airmen, our uh, uh, Air Force personnel, you know, the Marines, um, uh, you know, some of the best trained in the world, right? Uh, but, you know, there are alternatives. So diplomacy is one, trade is another, uh, oh, and by the way, allowing our allies, right, to sometimes take the lead and to bring us in if, if needed. So so I think it's going to have to happen at the ballot box because the incentives for Congress, you know, our, our Congress uh, people is, is too great because there's a lot of money behind this complex. Um, and so, you know, threat environment, you know, um, um, uh, you know, funding money behind it. Um, and then I think just cumulative impact. People aren't stepping back uh, and saying, is this good? And you are seeing our research is helping to contribute to that stepping back and viewing that. Like I said, the Cost of War Project at Brown, which only looks at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, you're talking trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars that were spent. Uh, And we can talk until we're blue in the face about the collapsing infrastructure in the United States, rising cost of health care. I mean, our educational system, we are making decisions about where our money goes. Um, uh, but it's the citizens that are going to have to choose uh, elected officials to say enough, enough with the use of force. And, you know, just to finish the point, I'm quite nervous about the war in Ukraine because it's another opportunity for the military industrial complex, right, to demonstrate, oh, how great these weapons are. Oh, but now we need the next generation. And by the way, we're using up a lot of systems, right? Um, we only have so many. Oh, this is an opportunity to, to create or recreate new ones. So, I don't see it getting better anytime soon. The war in Iraq uh, and in Ukraine is showing that the the appetite for this is is still quite healthy. Unfortunately, that's the case. And we also see that uh, with the the building agitation for possible military action against Iran, uh, the the president, when he was on his Middle East trip, uh, when he was in Israel, was asked about using force against Iran. And he said he would be willing to do so as a last resort. But of course, as, uh, as we know, launching an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities would be anything but a last resort. And so mm-hmm. it's it's curious how a, a preventive war option is being dressed up as, as somehow uh, more legitimate than that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, given the track record of the last few decades, how concerned are you that the U.S. is going to launch an attack on Iran in the next, let's say, 10 years? Um, I don't know. See, I think I think it's unlikely, and I think it's unlikely for for two reasons. One is is Iran. I think Iran is acting like a rational state uh, in the sense that it understands that if the United States gets angry enough or if they, the talks and negotiations diplomacy breaks down, um, that the United States can go in and basically destroy the country, basically what we do in Iraq. And I think, and, and from Iran's perspective, it understands it's in a, a terrible neighborhood in part because of, it, of its own doing, and there's no denying that. Um, and second is, is here where I think the American public matters, again, is I don't think the Americans have the stomach for another war in the Middle East, right? I think we learned our lessons in Iraq. We've gotten burned in Syria. Yemen is a humanitarian disaster. Um, and I think that there are enough interests in Iran, meaning from the region, to help to sort of deal with the Iranian issue um, that the United States may not have to be in a position to use force. However, you know, if Iran gets nuclear capability, that will be a game changer. Um, but it seems to me the diplomatic route is still alive. Uh, the question is, is whether, and, and you're seeing this with this, they want to possibly do this, this joint air defense, expanding the Abraham Accords, right? Um, uh, I think that that's actually good news where you've got the region engaged uh, so that the United States doesn't have to be the one to make that ultimate decision. Because that's the question we don't ask ourselves, the assumption. Why is it the United States has to make the decision to use force, right? Now, Israel, as we know, it, it would go in and, and, and target and has targeted in the past and in Iran. But in this case, I think there are enough partners engaged that I, 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 I suspect that the United States may not have to use force in Iran, that there's enough diplomatic channels open, there's enough sound minds, including in Iran, uh, about what's at stake here. Um, and, and maybe this is a situation perhaps, you know, Iraq demonstrated, Syria demonstrated, uh, don't mess with the United States, and, and Libya, of course. Uh, we can really mess you up. On the other hand, those three countries are basket cases. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think Iran can learn from that. And, and I, I would hope is learning from that. Well, I think we've run out of time, Monica. I really appreciate this. Um, it's very important that your data get out there. What is the best way for listeners to access military industrial project, um, all of the work that you've been doing, the research, the outcomes. Okay, so we have an article coming out in the Journal of Conflict. First of all, I've written for the Quincy Institute. I've also written for the conversation War on the Rocks, so they can Google me and they can find some of the data. Excellent. In um, then we have an article coming out in the uh, uh, Journal of Conflict Resolution, and then we have a book coming out with Oxford early in, in next winter, so January oh, Wonderful. 30th. So people can buy the book. Um, so uh, different venues. And then, of course, they can email me directly. And I'd love to share them and have conversations about it. It's such important work. And, and, and I, I want to make sure it gets out there. So thank you. Thank you and thank you for coming on the show and sharing it with us. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Downey. It was great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>